Welcome to the Community Health Alliances podcast brought to you by Monarch Healthcare Management as a donation to Care Resource Connection. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Steve Coring. I'm the fire chief for the city of St. Louis Park. And I'm Amy Look, the CEO of Care Resource Connection. And today we're going to talk about the importance of uh, community paramedicine and and how we are addressing these issues out in our greater Minnesota uh, areas. Uh, and I, we have with us today a person who's been engaged in this work for a number of years and is part of one of the largest healthcare systems in the state. So we have Michael Juttonen, who is currently the coordinator for community paramedicine for Mayo. And, uh, you know, Michael, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do and uh, and your role with Mayo? Yeah, thank you, Steve. Uh, and, yeah, good morning. So my role is, uh, yeah, as mentioned, coordinator for community paramedic service here at Mayo Clinic. Uh, my role is really program oversight and clinical oversight of our community paramedics who are out doing the work day to day. Uh, we've got operations right now in Rochester, Minnesota, kind of serving the southeast area of Minnesota. And then we are shortly going to be starting operations in St. Cloud. Uh, we're less than a month away uh, from opening there, in which we'll be doing some behavioral health uh, response team work up there. Um, and we've previously been in a few other locations and trialed different things in both super rural, rural, and urban areas. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where we're at today. So as you go out into this, you know, the community paramedicine thing has been around long enough where it's not new to people, but yet it's it's still finding hard, it's finding it hard to get traction for that particular status uh, for a lot of different reasons. But tell us, what are the challenges you're seeing with moving com community paramedicine out into the world? Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, it's been around, what, almost 15 years now or somewhere right around that mark. Um, but like anything, it's, when something new comes along, it takes usually a good decade for anybody to start embracing it and really figuring out what to do with it. Um, and that's kind of where we're at today. You know, we talk a lot about it with community paramedicine, but um, mobile integrated health as a whole, you know, community EMTs, community health workers, and all of that working together uh, to work on some of these uh, issues that we're seeing come further and further along, uh, you know, out, to, out with our patients in the communities, um, you know, we're still trying to figure out how to best serve them. So I think some of the biggest challenges that I'm seeing today uh, would revolve around staffing is one. So especially when there's kind of a heavy community paramedic emphasis in a lot of the, at least the urban areas, um, but even with community EMTs, you know, there's not a lot of paramedics and EMTs out there today. So um, we're struggling to staff, you know, those credentialing levels on the ambulance as it is. And then we've got work like this where we're trying to also expand the career field and, and bring new options and, and kind of evolve EMS. And we're struggling with how to balance that when, when the 911 operations or the other side of EMS is also struggling for staffing. Um, so that's one of them. And then the big elephant in the room usually revolves around funding. Um, you know, the healthcare system in the United States is kind of built on um, 
you know, more of a reactive patient care model um, where, you know, when you have an issue, you go in and they address that issue. Um, where this kind of work really revolves in the other side of healthcare, which is a you know, more of a preventative medicine, um, and how do we help people be more successful at home and not need to have uh, such a reliance on the clinics and hospitals. And so um, there isn't really a lot of funding streams there to support that kind of work, um, nor are we used to talking about things like opportunity costs or other ways of justifying some of these programs. I'm not saying that this is the only one out there. I mean, there is other healthcare entities who work in this space, but um, at least on the EMS side, where you know these credentialing levels are coming from, it's it's a different concept, a different way of thinking, and a different way of justifying cost um, that everybody's kind of getting used to. And as you, when you see the challenges that happen, you know, kind of connecting the dots between the physician and then the patient in the home, how does, where do you see, I mean, has Mayo got that figured out or is that still the challenge in that you're trying to deal with also making sure that the primary care doc understands what's happening in the, with the patient where they are? Yeah. So we have gotten a pretty good handle on that in our area. Um, you know, we're fortunate that as I, you know, our program is part of Mayo Clinic and we're seeing primarily Mayo Clinic patients. We do not um, necessarily see only patients that are, are being um, paneled or overseen by a, a male primary care provider. Um, but that is the bulk of the work that we do. So it does make it easier for us to reach out and talk with um, or connect with the primary care providers to make sure that they are in, that they have the opportunity to be involved and um, in, and give input and help provide guidance when needed. Um, a lot of the work that we're doing in our program evolves. It, it, I mean, we've kind of taken the spaghetti against the wall model a little bit. Um, basically, anything that's within our scope of practice um, that we feel we can do to help people be successful at home, we'll do. So some of that's very interventional based. So we'll work with specialty services like the various wound care departments at Mayo Clinic or cardiovascular departments at Mayo Clinic and uh, see patients for very specific needs. Um, and then we have a very good connection. Like they get, we always require that they provide us a route to ask questions or talk uh, through anything that we encounter when we see those patients so that they can make sure that everything is progressing properly. Um, but we do always try to get the primary care involved so that they have the ability to provide input as well. And those primary care providers have the ability to refer to us directly as well. Does that kind of answer what you're looking for, Steve? Yeah, no, I think so. Amy, you have a question? I do. And uh, we just had uh, Dr. Wilcox on uh, before you when we were talking about how how important it is to have that primary care and have the entire care team together with um, the Community Health Alliance as we're working in this uh, mobile integrated health space. Um, and then looking at a lot of these things as we're in different communities, how each community is, is unique. But when we're talking about the funding opportunities and how we've been dealing in this reactive healthcare model and what we're doing is more preventative, um, what are your thoughts or have you spoken with your team at the Mayo in regards to value-based contracts where you're at risk for this patient population and there's a financial component 
to that ACO versus a value-based savings contract where the work that we're doing and, and the, um, the visits that we're making, keeping the patients out of the hospital could be looked at another funding opportunity. Have you had those conversations looking at different models? Yeah, we've really just introduced those con- those conversations. So uh, today, our program is funded fully by Mayo Clinic. Um, they pay for all of the FTE needed for us to go out and do our visits, um, and that has been a good, you know it was enough to get us going and be able to start seeing a lot of patients. We could start getting data together to start talking with payers or other sources about those types of things. Um, so with that, we've just started focusing a little bit more on ACO patients, so early accountable care organization patients, which Mayo Clinic uh, does participate in as an ACO program. Um, and so we are going to start looking specifically at some of those uh, those patients in rural areas, um, so Austin, Albert Lee type areas in Minnesota, to see if we can uh, start showing you know, more empirical data that says that we are reducing the overall cost of healthcare. Um, outside of that, uh, we've started looking at doing some TCM or CCM work, transition care management or chronic care management um, type work as well, which is a reimbursable opportunity for uh, these types of programs. So we may see some of that in, uh, incorporated into our program later this year, um, but today we are not um, operating under that kind of reimbursement model. And we've preliminary just talked internally about seeing if there was the ability to do some contract with payers um, to see some of their patients and um, see if they would fund uh, the program directly. But we have not actually approached any payers uh, to, to have those kind of value-based contracts as of today. Great. So you have come into this space with Steve and I at the perfect time because these are the conversations that we're also having um, on our side, especially when it comes to rural. You know, that that's where we're, we work with some organizations that oversee 24 counties in rural Minnesota, and they're asking us to help out um, and work with them. But I like the idea, just like we were talking about in Arrowwood um, during the class where if we start looking at how our data is is managed. So right now, like we talked about, the, the fire department has a 911 data. You know, obviously EMS can, can pull it too, but many times the, um, the rig is called off and the patient decides that they don't want to be transported, which means that the fire department are the ones that are holding, you know, the, this information. And that's where... It's key to have, you know, all of us working in this space collaboratively talking about how we can work with um, the community paramedics, the the community EMTs, the care coordinators, because so so much of this work has already been looked at when if we're going to have a CP come in, it's for a specialty reason, right? Just like you were saying, dealing with those chronic health issues. But if we open it up more broadly and we look at it as this is part of our community health alliance and that community paramedic is going in, you know, maybe on the 30, 60, 90, or the community EMT is going in on the 30, 60, 90 and doing um, based off of what the doctor is ordering and having that back and forth. What do you think about that type of an idea? 
Well, I think at the end of the day, you know, in every community, we have to do a kind of an individual assessment, right? And mm-hmm. to kind of determine what resources can we get together. And I, I really hope that we'll, what I, what I, I think most of our communities are operating this way today within the community EMT, community paramedic realm, and I hope to see it continue, is that we never view the patient as our patient versus your patient. Mm -hmm. You know, just because I may be seeing them doesn't mean that I should be um, in any position to say, you know, well, we really want to take care of that entirely ourselves and not involve other care levels into it. Um, And I really hope to see that. In my brain, the mobile integrated health model really means multiple service levels where you're sending the right resource to the right patient at the right time. And anytime we can embrace that to say, just like you had mentioned, if, if maybe a, a community health worker or a community, you know, a community EMT is the right level to send for some assessments on their you know, home safety or social determinants of health screening type things. Um, and just to kind of determine what kind of barriers are there for the patient. And then once those are identified, we start sending appropriate levels, whether that's a social worker, a community paramedic, uh, you know, potentially, I would hope, you know, to go to work with some of our other senior service departments or palliative care and stuff to say, can we get an NP or a PA out there to see them? Um, and just connect them you know, and make sure that we're always connecting them with the resource that they truly need. Mm-hmm. Agreed. You know, Michael, I think uh, a lot of the things that we recognize is that there, there's within every community, there's a tremendous amount generally of community-based resources that within their own mission statements are doing a lot of good work, right? They're, they're, they're best of intentions. They have a lot of people, a lot of thoughts, a lot of energy put around trying to, to deliver what they have as part of their mission. But there's also this big disconnect, right, between the fact that all of those community-based resources aren't working collaboratively generally, and certainly that the healthcare systems aren't working in concert with those community-based resources. How do you, I think that one of the challenges I see is how the healthcare systems tend to always believe that this problem can be vertically integrated into their operation, that they that they could use our resources. And how do you, when you're out there in the field, actually at the tip of the spear doing this work, what, what do you see as the value of the local community-based resource that's in the community, understands the community, and can partner with uh, you in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I mean, I fully agree with you. There's all kinds of groups out there that I was completely oblivious to until I came into this type of work. Um, And it it just amazed me the amount of people who are out there um, doing all kinds of different levels of care at people's homes or at, you know, community centers and so on. Um, And it it became kind of apparent quickly that um, a lot of those people like to, you know, there's a lot of them who are volunteering their time um, and what, they don't like to toot their own horn, right? So they don't necessarily, they advertise to who they feel they need to advertise to to make them aware of that their program exists. Um, but the rest of the community doesn't necessarily know that they're out there um, and, and, what, and what they're doing. And so as we discover who they are and what they're doing, um, we always try to get as many um, of these groups listed like we had to create our own phone book there's some community resource books out there and stuff as well but we kind of created our own phone list of different agencies who are doing different things that we can quickly call and talk to about getting a patient set up for x 
Um, so, you know, recently we had a patient who, you know, diabetic, has been previously poorly managed. We've been working very hard to get their diabetic uh, regimen under control. Um, and he was having good success, but uh, there was also issues that he was having with uh, with his feet. You know, he's, you know, he, we, we did some wound checks and stuff on him, but he really needed some proper foot cares and stuff that we just don't really train or necessarily do. But we found that there's a resource in our community who provides, you know, foot care work for patients. Um, and we got them connected together. Um, in this instance, they actually came to his home, but there are times where they're doing these clinics out in the community. Um, and so we were able to get that connected. And that's, that's a huge thing for that patient as a preventative measure, right? So that we know that if a you know, diabetic already has neuropathy and, and circulation issues, if they get a wound in their foot, it's a bad thing. And with some simple cares, we can really prevent that. And we want to get as many of those resources together. And um, like I said, we never want to say we should do it um, or we should train on it and, and add it if there's somebody else out there who's specializing in it and um, we can connect, get them connected with. And I think that's the beauty of our Community Health Alliance is we're able to come into these spaces, having the fire department host um, this program and be the the face of this program and we are able to have people come in the silos are broken down everybody's there to share what they're doing networking understanding who's the bat lines for what resource at what time and then just continually to build on that own community like phone books as you speak um, we do that with all of our community health alliances that we go in with the fire departments. And then every quarter we meet at the fire station and we update these lists. We see if there's any new folks coming in, if there's any new organizations that are changing things or new programs are coming in into play. And it becomes a culture of the community through the fire department because we are looking at this in a preventative way. Yeah, and I think that, you know, people talk about, you know, why the fire department? I think, you know, you've heard me say a number of times, Michael, I think the fire department is uh, is the right connection point within the community. But on the other hand, where a fire department doesn't exist, there needs to be, this, this work needs to be connected in a way that the community resources are, are aligning through some sort of care coordination model uh, where people trust it. And then at the same time that you're bringing people to the table, like Amy just talked about, and just making sure that the system is staying connected, that it doesn't mm -hmm. become so reliant on one provider or another. It's really remains agnostic and delivering the right resource where people have choice to get the right resource in front of the patient at the right time. <clears throat> Absolutely. And then the rural, the, the rural areas where I think we can put these ideas and, and places together and, and things like that. I'm excited that you're going to be coming up into uh, St. Paul. I'm, I live in Wright County, so that's just a throw, throw stone's throw away from me up in rural, but in rural is where we're seeing a lot of the needs. The hospitals are seeing from Centra Care to Big Lake Monty, um, Buffalo up there. It's the lift assist is crippling them. And the, these patients have, nowhere else to go but to remain in their home so that's where the you know what the service that you provide with the community paramedic is going to really um 
being instrumental up in, in that space as, as how how we're able to start pulling some of these resources and meet the patients where they are in the home. Yeah, I mean, I fully agree that Steve had mentioned this earlier as well about, you know, getting the fire departments involved or any first response service involved mm-hmm. um, is really a key piece because there is a lot of burden being placed on the EMS system today that isn't necessarily being addressed. I mean, even on the ambulance transport, um, well, I should say, I'll step back and kind of focus more on the non-transported patients. So the lift assists or diabetic treatment releases and all of those patients, the hospitals and clinics aren't necessarily notified or aren't necessarily aware of what's happening with those patients. And our previous model has always been built around, like, we go to the 911 call and we address it and we and that's the end of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but we are now seeing boy, we, sh- we, we could probably take a little more responsibility for the follow-up of these patients and say, you know, if we're seeing any trends with any of them or what kind of follow-ups can we offer them to help, help them be successful because we're the ones seeing that issue that arose and it's probably not going to get to the attention of other providers in the system. So um, being able to build in follow-up mechan- you know, mechanics into our process flows um, and doing something better with the patients we're seeing. I, I really think is that next evolution of the EMS, right? Like we're moving past episodic care, the, yep. you know, just fixing what's right in front of me today and moving into that longitudinal care, which will, you know, I, I really think is where EMS needs to get to and will be a big piece of it in the future. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Michael. In the time that we in the time that we have left here, I'd like to shift gears a little bit because uh, another uh, role that you play in in EMS in the state of Minnesota is that you are also the president of the Minnesota Ambulance Association. And I know because I sit in the I, I share a spot on that board and and get to hear you talk about the needs and the challenges going on all the time. Tell me, why don't you share with our audience a little bit about? You've kind of touched on it briefly about some of the challenges on the on the ambulance side, but just what is the what is the challenges that are happening out in Minnesota today, and and how this demand on nine one one system is impacting our ability to serve patients? Yeah, no, I appreciate it, Steve. Um, and yeah, I do. I take the officially take the presidency seat here in March. Um, and yeah, I've been sitting as the president elect for the last two years, um, but. You know, our focus has really revolved around workforce and funding from the Minnesota Animal Association standpoint. Um, we are seeing a big decline in EMTs and paramedics in the state of Minnesota. We, our most recent data from 2022 showed that there was 3,000 less, there was, three, there was a gap of 3,000 people between those who were leaving the industry and not renewing their certification and those coming in. Um, and so we're starting to see this negative um, this, this negative number coming through every year about um, how many people are entering the industry, um, which is very concerning in an industry that's hoping to grow. Um, you know, we're seeing a demand that continues to rise, and we know that it's going to continue to rise at least through 2030, if not beyond. Um, and we're not seeing a pers- you know, enough personnel coming in to meet those demands. But there's also a reimbursement issue. Um, so we, you know, the reimbursement model uh, really previously relied on private insurance to cover the cost of operation because governmental payers such as Medicare and Medicaid were reimbursing less than the cost it took to go do that care. 
And again, as that 2030 number I talked about, we're going to continue to see a rise in governmental, you know, the shift into more governmental reimbursed patients coming into the industry. Um, that, that means we're seeing less revenue um, being generated by the ambulance services and now it's become unsustainable um, as it is um, without some form of change and reimbursement. Now part of that, um, really focusing on what we've been talking about today, I do think that there's a part that can be played in doing more than just 911 care with a lot of the providers that we have out in our communities, especially in rural Minnesota. And unfortunately today, most of our community MPs, community paramedic services that are existing in Minnesota are primarily in urban areas. Um, and they're really focused on hospital decompression uh, type efforts. Not saying all the programs, but most of that I'm aware of kind of focus on that area. But in rural Minnesota, we've got patients who have, you know, decreased access to health care. Um, there's less health care options. You know, the primary care providers in, in the rural, you know, rural hospitals and clinics are getting overwhelmed. I mean, most, most providers are months out from being able to get an appointment. And so... We, we have this access to healthcare issue and we've got these community, we've got these EMTs and paramedics who are in those communities who, boy, if we really trained and got the, you know, got an infrastructure in place to help support them, they could be out helping do community-based care to help, help people be successful and be able to be an advocate for them and identify issues and concerns. Um, and if we can create a reimbursement method there as well, that can help offset some of those funding issues that they're seeing. Um, to one, help support the, um, you know, support the efforts of doing community health um, and also be able to offset some of those ambulance service funding issues that are there, especially if they're starting to hire full-time staff in areas that previously didn't need full-time staff. Um, and I know I didn't dive into that topic too heavily, but we know that volunteerism is starting to struggle in the industry, both police, fire, and EMS. Um, and so areas that, you know, used to rely on volunteers to cover their ambulance service during the day, they're now hiring, you know, full-time team members to cover. And there's a cost to that, that they weren't previously having to, uh, that the city or whatever, whoever was paying or funding that ambulance service didn't have to have previously. And this community health work could help offset some of that as well, I think. So, Steve, what would you add there? Well, I think that's, uh, you know, I, we got about, uh, about two and a half minutes left, uh, before we have to call it quits, but I mean, this, this opens up a, a whole nother can of worms. It'd be great to have another big discussion on. I know that obviously the work that, uh, that you're doing with the ambulance association and, and a lot of the work that's being done in the state this year at the legislation level is really hopefully being guided at kind of addressing this this challenge that exists in the healthcare system in Minnesota. And I and I'll say Minnesota just because that's what our focus is. I think it's a national problem. But I think that um right, I think this this conversation about how we partner at the community level um with you know the quality of care, the primary care provider, the hospital system that supports that primary care provider, and then ultimately the community-based resource. How do we get better at bringing that together so it can stay focused on the patient and the community? And because uh, ultimately, I think that's our charge if we're truly in this business for what's right, and that's the patient itself. Yeah, I agree. We have to look at new ways of delivering care. 
Uh, we can't continue to hold on to the previous model. And so in Minnesota, it does, you know, does have a scope of practice foundation for EMTs and paramedics that allows medical directors to go above and beyond um, and add things in as they approve um, that would allow for this work to be done. And I think we could develop a model here in Minnesota that could really be an example for other states to follow. Um, it is a national issue. We know that there's uh, work being done by different departments out there, but there's no reason we shouldn't be out there trying to lead that same that same conversation. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us today. This has been uh, this has been enlightening, and uh, and I hope our listeners uh, can appreciate the amount of effort that's being taken place by your organization, Mayo, and uh, and you individually. So, again, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Uh, uh, for listeners, uh, this uh, will this will be dropped in the next uh, couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. Would love to have you. Uh, participate. And then Michael, we'd love to have you back at some point once we move this uh, down the road a little bit further. Absolutely. And we look forward to having uh, more conversations on new ways to continue to build on this innovation of community health. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to me ramble. All right. Thanks, Michael. Take care. Thank you. Yep. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Please tune in next Wednesday, wherever you listen to your podcasts.